If it's a beautiful, sunny day, a bluebird day, and you look up in the sky just about anywhere in the world, crisscrossing the sky, you will see white plumes of smoke hanging there, long trails. They call them contrails. And if you talk to somebody who is uninformed or deliberately manipulative, they will tell you some sort of conspiracy story about those trails. It turns out they're just ice. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about contrails, the government, coordination, and our future. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Get better clients. There, in three words, is the strategy of any freelancer who wants to do better work. Get better clients. You can't work more hours, but you can work for people who appreciate the work you want to do. They will push you harder. You will do better work. They will talk about you. You will get paid more. You will be more proud of what you produce. How to get better clients. I've been thinking about this for a long time, and we have built a workshop just for you. If you work for yourself, I really think you need to check it out. It's at www thefreelancersworkshop.com. It's not a bunch of videos. It's a workshop. You will work with other freelancers, working your way forward to figure out how to do this work that matters. I hope you'll take a minute to check it out. Thefreelancersworkshop.com. We would love to have you join us. Yes, those contrails you see up in the sky left behind by jets are almost entirely ice. It turns out that when you burn a gallon of jet fuel high in the atmosphere, it releases almost a gallon of water. There's no water in the jet fuel, but jet fuel is a hydrocarbon, and the act of combusting it frees up some hydrogen, which then engages with the oxygen in the air, turns itself into water. It adheres to tiny little bits of sulfur that are in the fuel, and those droplets of water are in air that is way below zero, and so it freezes. It takes a long time for that ice to melt, which is why the contrails might last for a few minutes or even longer. But I don't really want to talk about conspiracy theories. I do want to talk about a conspiracy. How is it that you can get on a plane anywhere in the world and fly anywhere in the world? that every airport code aligns with every other one in structure, that the radio on every single airplane can talk to the radio at every single control tower, that air traffic control works around the world, that if you land in your Airbus or your Boeing plane, the airport where you land will have a jet bridge that's exactly the right size to let you get off the plane. It turns out that since 1906, the countries around the world have been working together to coordinate what it means to travel. Now it's called the International Civil Aviation Organization. It's a UN agency. Every single country in the world is a member, except for Liechtenstein, because Liechtenstein doesn't have an airport, but all the rest of them are members. And as members, there is a reason that they obey the rules. They obey the rules because if you don't, you can't 
fly to another country. The cost of defecting is very high. So what we end up with is a coordination ratchet, that opting out is really expensive, coordinating is very beneficial. The system keeps getting more and more refined. All the countries working together to make it more and more likely that planes work the way they're supposed to. Sometimes countries are good at this. What they're not particularly good at is big, independent projects from scratch. They're not very good at doing things like putting a man on the moon. Every once in a while, they'll fight a war. That's an existential crisis. Every once in a while, they'll do something like pave huge sections of the earth because there is not just economic incentives, there are huge pressures on governments to make industry happy. But in general, governments are reactive. And in general, governments aren't particularly good at coordinating with one another. The main reason for this is that there isn't a ratchet toward cooperation. There's a ratchet toward dropping out. Which brings us to the topic of the warming of the earth, the cancer of the atmosphere, the fact beyond any measure of any doubt that the earth is getting warmer year after year. And countries, countries are having a real problem figuring out how to coordinate to solve the problem. And the reason that they need to coordinate is that there's only one planet. Just as we saw with aircraft needing to engage with each other and with airports around the world, it doesn't do the planet a lot of good if one country is doing one thing and another country is doing something that cancels that thing out. But the benefits of defecting are high indeed. Consider the world's taxation and banking system. How is it that people with billions of dollars are able to move their money around and manipulate the system so that they don't have to pay taxes anywhere? Well, the answer is there's always a country that's willing to break the system to benefit itself, even a little, because their rationale is, well, it's better to make a little tiny bit on this billionaire than to make nothing and have them stay in their home country. So there is no worldwide regime to ensure that everyone, every company, or every person is paying taxes. There's defectors. So what happens when we start to develop cheaper alternatives to burning carbon fuels? Well, when that happens, demand for carbon will go down for two reasons. One, because carbon is hurting all of us, and two, because there are cheaper alternatives. So the price of oil will go down. When the price of oil goes down, some people, some countries, instead of walking away from it, will defect and take advantage of the surplus. All of which leads to this challenging problem, the problem that is highlighted by the difficulty of the Paris Accords. The Paris Accords, hardly strict enough, also don't have universal worldwide adoption. Unlike the International Civil Aviation Agreements, there is very little reason to not defect. And so the United States has defected, opting out of the agreements they said they would honor. So we have a problem. The problem is we have a worldwide challenge, 
but we don't have the game theory in place to solve the worldwide challenge. Because if we don't all work in unison, it's significantly less effective than if we do. So in the face of this, many of the technocrats I know have shifted in just the last year from we can figure our way out of this together to there's a technical solution, geoengineering, and if the countries won't do it, we'll find someone who will. So a simple version of geoengineering, one that is, I think, beyond controversy, is building machines that take carbon out of the air and either turn it back into fuel, which becomes a circle, or pump it deep into caverns or mines underground back where it came from. The problem with carbon sequestration is that it is expensive and it is slow. Technology tends to make things that are expensive cheaper and things that are slow faster. And over time, it's entirely possible that it will get faster. The problem is it's hard to come up with an economic justification because unless there's a worldwide regime in place to create carbon cap and trade, a way that you can get paid to take carbon out of the air, it's hard to see how to make a business out of taking carbon out of the air. And so people are pursuing more dramatic approaches. For example, if you take huge amounts of wasted, bent iron bars and bring them to the ocean and dump them in, the iron will rust. As the iron rusts, it will release oxygen. As the oxygen is released underwater, it will cause all sorts of things to grow. Those things that grow, you got it. They will sequester carbon. Changing the entire chemistry of the ocean, it sounds like a government-sized problem. However, we've gotten to the point where industry, where lone crazy entrepreneurs have enough leverage to start doing this. Okay, back to the contrails, back to where we started. They did some research around 2001, some before that, some after, and they found that contrails actually change the weather. For the three days after the attacks on the World Trade Center in New York, there was no air traffic. All planes were grounded. In just that period of time, they were able to determine that the difference between daytime and nighttime temperatures got dramatically bigger around the country, with more than 4,000 places monitoring this. It is entirely possible, since it was just a three-day window, that it was an anomaly. But it's much more likely that it has to do with the contrails, with reflecting heat back to the earth, that the warm heat for the day gets reflected back at night, and so the difference, the diurnal shift between day and night gets smaller. So there's one theory that says contrails, as they currently exist, actually create more warming of the earth. But what happens, some engineers and technologists say, if we could get the stuff higher into the air? And what happens if we add just a little bit more sulfur to the fuel. That leads us to SCOPEX. SCOPEX, an experiment done at Harvard, about to be released into the upper, upper atmosphere, in which 
the stuff that's in Alka-Seltzer, just powdered, not a lot of it, released into the atmosphere to determine if it reflects enough sunlight to lower the temperature of the earth. Let's just say for a second that for not a lot of money, maybe a billion dollars, we could release enough stuff, whether it's calcium carbonate or sulfur or something else, into the upper stratosphere that it would reflect enough sunlight to cool the earth. Here's the question. Is there enough coordination, enough opt-in game theory, a ratchet toward cooperation that the nations of the earth could get their act together and go ahead and do something like that? Or is it more likely that someone, some crazy mad scientist, is just going to do it? Or perhaps someone who figures out that they can make a profit doing it. Because corporations have been doing this since there have been corporations. Going on missions to colonize the earth, creating trade in goods and services that other people don't think they should, building things, putting effluent into the river, pumping stuff into the sky. This has been going on for a really long time. Independent commercial entities in the name of the free market changing our environment. There's another UN body called the Council on Biological Diversity, and they also have 193 countries as members, and they are regularly entering into agreements to work to save the biodiversity of the earth. It's really hard to argue against their cause. And one of the things that its members have signed on to is that no government will engage in geoengineering to radically change the environment of the earth if it will decrease the biodiversity of the earth. This is a loophole big enough to fly a jet through because the argument can be made that radical shifts in our climate are the single best way to save the biodiversity of the earth. All of this is a way of highlighting how important it is as we think about culture to realize the difference between defectors and coordinators and cooperators. That when cooperation makes sense in the short run, it is much more likely to happen in the long run. And as we face more and more crises with billions of people losing their homes, with food supplies being shifted, I think it's inevitable that independent actors are going to show up with technology that works on the entire planet. Of course, if this movie had a happy ending, two things would be true. The crazy entrepreneur would be right, and the crazy entrepreneur would be alone. There wouldn't be two or three or four or five people or organizations doing this in an uncoordinated fashion that duplicated their efforts, plunging us in the wrong direction. There's a reason that they lock the thermostats at a conference, because if one person after another goes up and changes the thermostat, pretty soon chaos ensues. And I'm not saying this to scare anybody, but we can feel it already beginning to happen around the edges. So the questions we need to ask ourselves are not, is the world getting warmer? Are sea levels rising? Are people and animals going to be severely disrupted? The answer to all of those questions is yes. What we have to figure out is, in our culture, the culture that we built, 
the thing that is ours, not done to us, but by us, how will we put in place game theory that leads to cooperation? Because when our backs are to the wall, human beings have figured out how to do it before. We figured out how to limit the spread of nuclear weapons. We figured out how to get planes to be able to land at one airport or another. And so the urgent cause in front of us is to figure out how, with only one planet to share, we're going to coordinate our way to fixing the problem we made in the first place. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with an answer to a question from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you will check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Here's a question from Mike about a topic we've covered before, but it's worth going through again. Hey, Seth. Mike here from Sydney, Australia. When I was a kid, I played in a Buddy Holly tribute show that used to play around Australia. We played different different pubs and clubs. And at some venues, people had to pay $40 per ticket to come and see the show. And in some clubs, it was a different deal. And the gig was free and anyone could wander in and, and wander out. And it was very noticeable that at, at the shows where people had to pay $40, $50 to come and see the show, they sat there, they watched it, they cheered and clapped and they just seemed to get into the show more than the people where the show was free and they could wander in and wander out and they didn't really care. So my question is giving away ideas and giving away uh, things that are going to help change culture. How do we balance this? How do we balance, you know, giving an idea away for free, but then also expecting people to value that even though you just gave it away. Because oftentimes when something is free or very low price, people don't value it. So what do we do? Thank you. Thank you for teeing this one up. Yes, there is a huge gulf between the enrollment that people feel when they pay and when it just shows up for free. And what the internet has done for everything that involves digits is turned so much of it upside down. Things that used to be really expensive might be free. Things that used to be free might end up being expensive. And it turns out when people pay, they take it more seriously. Cognitive dissonance kicks in, sunk costs, there's more commitment. Also, 
when people pay, we're much more likely to have, quote, the right people, unquote, in the room. Because there's nobody who's just drifting in for a beer. They made a commitment to be there. When the right people are in the room, virtual or figurative, what we discover is that the atmosphere in the room changes. Peer pressure changes. Expectations change. Even the performance in your case changes. Because you're saying to yourself, this is an audience that cares, so we have to care more as well. I could go into great detail with plenty of examples. That poor piano player at the Ramada lobby sitting there, maybe they're a really good piano player, but surrounded by people who listening to the piano is their 40th highest priority, the piano player starts to phone it in. They become embittered and then a career ends, all because of free. On the other hand, when we charge, a lot of people who might show up if it was free, who might get involved, don't because they're afraid, because there's friction. Charging creates this sort of friction. So what's the advantage of free? The advantage of free, as Chris Anderson has pointed out in his book of the same name, is it creates a sampling and a sharing mindset. Tim O'Reilly famously said, for most creators, the enemy is not piracy. The enemy is obscurity, not being known. If you have a factory that makes widgets and everyone in town comes and takes one for free, you're bankrupt. But if you have a factory that makes ideas and everyone in town comes and gets one, you're rich. Because an idea isn't taken, it's shared. And as ideas spread, they become more valuable. And so we have this challenge, which is how do we spread an idea for free and then create emotional enrollment? Because if you have emotional enrollment, the money will take care of itself. Someone could listen to every song John Legend has ever put on the radio for free, but they have to pay for the souvenir edition, for the autograph, for the concert. If enough people know your idea and there's emotional enrollment, the money will take care of itself. So where does the emotional enrollment come from? Well, one model, as you pointed out with your buddy Holly Band, is if someone pays. Paying creates emotional enrollment. Emotional enrollment selects people who are willing to pay. That's the way it's been for a really long time. But the alternative is what happens when the culture creates peer pressure. When the culture announces that this is important, it's important because we've all sampled it. It's important because people like us do things like this. It's important because we're all in the room together. It's important because even though it's free, we're giving you a dirty look because you're talking during the concert. And so what is ending up happening here is a division between getting paid to make a living and getting paid as a signal. And there are other versions of that signal. And that signal have to do with, is this what people like me do? Is this what my group does? Is this a thing I need to do to improve my status the way I fit in with my community? In a few weeks here in the United States, people are going to be voting. Voting is free, but voting involves a lot of emotional commitment. And unbelievably to me, disappointingly, about half the people in this country don't vote. They don't vote not because they can't afford it, but because they don't want the emotional commitment to the process and to the outcome. 
That gulf between how much does it cost and am I committed is what people who create culture for a living, as you do, have to lean into. What does it mean to be in the room? Maybe you have to apply to be in the room. Maybe there's a scarce number of seats in the room. Maybe something magical happens in the room and you need to bring a friend or you can't come in. Or maybe you can't come in unless a friend brings you. All of these are ways to ensure that the people who are engaging in what you do are engaging for the right reasons. The right reasons have nothing to do with the fact that you play in tune. The right reasons have nothing to do with Buddy Holly. The right reasons have to do with, am I emotionally committed to this journey, to this process, to this group of people? Am I here because I want to be here, or did I just wander in? So there's no simple answer, but it really helps to see the questions. Just can't seem to get you off my mind. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.